politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house, your only source of truly independent, common sense values. Um, conservative and really even those that don't consider themselves conservative, people are looking for leadership. They're looking for a party that simply stands for the common sense of allowing peaceful, law-abiding Americans to go about their lives and not be treated like they are in China. And then on the other hand, to do what a government is supposed to do, which is to deter and punish violent criminals. Name me a party that's doing that. Name me a state that's doing that. We need to create that dynamic. Um, Again, we are going to continue our theme later on in the month, probably next week, trying to build more support for rebellions in the county governments like we've seen in Douglas County. I also have a ton of new work at conservativereview.com. You can see our columns there. I got one, the definitive case on opening schools for children, how it is indefensible to close schools for this virus, but not for the seasonal flu. We have a great piece out today on meatpacking plants, the worst environment for someone to get the virus in. Yet still, if you look at the numbers, the death rate is probably no more than 0.2%, even among a very vulnerable population, just because of the racial dynamics with vitamin D. It seems like um, non-whites are more vulnerable for whatever reason, but that's pretty much settled data according to CDC and, and every peer-reviewed study that's been done on this, and yet still the death rate is pretty low. Um, So I have that out as well. Lots of good material. Today we're going to get into immigration, which we haven't talked talked about for a while, where we have a country where we are strangers, we are locked down, we are treated like criminals, we're going to get arrested or fined if we don't wear a mask. But foreign nationals continue to get access to the courts, continue despite lockdowns they could come in at the border they could come in on student visas they could get amnesty obama's amnesty the trump administration is going back on a lot of problems so we're going to give this administration a report card we're going to have jessica vaughn with us in a couple of minutes but i just wanted to quickly before we bring on jessica go through some important news on the virus to demonstrate how we are being lied to first story is out of orlando Florida, one reporter at Fox 35, the Orlando affiliate, discovered that there were two cases there of people in their 20s who are listed as COVID deaths. Now, it's not impossible, but it's pretty rare. And she was wondering, so she asked them, hey, you know, what sort of underlying conditions did they have? And the guy, Orange County Health Officer, Dr. Raul Pino, said, quote, the first one didn't have any. He died in a motorcycle accident. So she said, well, so I'm assuming you're removing him from the list, right? He answered, quote, I don't think so. I have to double check. We're arguing, discussing, or trying to argue with the state, not because the numbers is 100. It doesn't make any difference if it's 99. But the fact that the individual didn't die from COVID died in the crash. But you could actually argue that it could have been the COVID-19 that caused him to crash. I don't know the conclusion of that one. Folks, we are being lied to. Remember, I want you guys to imagine. Two years ago, we had a pandemic flu that a a lot of people didn't know about. The official estimates are about 61,000 dead in the 2018 flu season. But CDC says in some reports they think it's more like 80,000. Imagine if you would have had universal testing, mass panic and obsessive testing during that era. And we would have had the liberal coding of anyone who tests positive who happens to die. And again, 58,000 people die every week, no matter what. Mainly older people, but sometimes you do have people in motorcycle crashes, drug overdoses, or, you know, rare cancers or other things that kill younger people. And a good percentage have the flu or have whatever respiratory virus 
is percolating that year or a more unusual pandemic respiratory virus that we saw in 2018. We saw we certainly have this year. We've had in 2009. We've had in 2003. We've had uh, the 2000 flu season. We've had in 57 and 68. My prediction is that had we done that, we would have easily recorded roughly the same amount of dead we have today. And this really speaks to the issue. The crux of the issue that we've been saying from day one. For most people in the country, below really 70, especially if they don't have four or five certain specific conditions, certain pulmonary kidney, but mainly heart and and diabetes, particularly diabetes at a certain level, they are, if they're really young, more like closer to my age, they're less likely to die than from the flu. Kids are much less likely to die than from the flu. You know, getting up there around 50, 55, 60, you're, you're, um, you know, you range from about as much as the flu to a little bit more. When you get elderly, but, but you know, you're, you're definitely more than the flu. The significant threat that's significantly more than the flu is, is people that either are elderly with a certain array of conditions or if they're 50, 60 and they have serious, serious diabetes, serious heart condition, those people, I mean, and, and that's that's really been proven consistently by all the data we have from all the countries, all the states, all the countries. And at the same time, 95% of people who of cases are actually more mild than the flu because you have this whole asymptomatic dynamic. But yet we're treating every case like it's those, like that group of top 1% cases of which maybe, you know, 5-10% wind up dying from. But that's the sick irony. We don't know the exact number. It could be 70% or so are asymptomatic. Another 25% are very mild. In most cases, really less than the flu. Um, a lot of times don't even get fever. Kind of like a cold. Sometimes even more like tingling and allergy-like sensations. And yet we're treating each one like it. And we're testing and we're identifying it. So again, 58,000 people die every week. A good number of them are going to have COVID. Certainly didn't die from it. So that's one lie. Second story I wanted to get to. We always ask, why why is the other side scared of debate? Why do they have to shut down? You You can't publish that. You can't say that. If they have the data and the science on their side, why are they scared of debate? Well, we see another example of this. It's from Breitbart. Dr. Anthony Fauci said Tuesday he opposes conducting a controlled study on the effectiveness of masks to prevent the spread of coronavirus. Fauci discussed the idea during a conversation with students of Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service. One student asked if it is possible to do a study in the midst of a pandemic about the effectiveness of wearing masks. Quote, what kind of studies can we do right now in the middle of the pandemic about masks and the transmission of the disease? Or are we just relying on anecdotal evidence because we are not able to do these kinds of studies right now? Fauci said there are enough meta-analysis of existing data showing the efficacy of masks. Right now, I'm convinced enough in the summation and totality of the data that has been analyzed by meta-analysis that I'm convinced that the benefit of wearing a mask clearly is there and is better than not wearing a mask. I would not want to do a randomized controlled study because that would mean having people not wear masks and see if they do better. So he's so concerned, oh, I don't want people in a control group not to wear masks. Folks, mind you, they're studying all sorts of aspects about this that would theoretically expose people to the virus. The answer is, as Dr. Bostom said on our show, as we've seen, there's so much literature on this. D.A. Henderson, the man who is widely credited with abolishing smallpox. He was the head of... um, uh, the you know school of public health for Johns Hopkins for for many years the dean one of the most celebrated you know whatever you want to call him virologist epidemiologist in in, in the history of the world 
He wrote a paper in 2006. There's no evidence it helps. There has never been a controlled clinical study. There has never been one. And they don't want to do one because they don't like the answer. You see, I got the best study of all. You see, in the state of California, you ask anyone there. I mean, I have the same thing in Maryland. I have never seen a single human being in any store I've been not wear a mask. Heck, I do. I'm too scared not to. I hate to admit it, but, you know, it's not just not worth me getting beaten up or verbally abused or whatever. I'm just in and out. I go in quickly and that's it. But the reality is these, these actions, just like the lockdown, were in place for weeks and it didn't help. It spreads the way it spreads and you can't do anything about that. You know, avoiding mass gatherings and close quarters is the best thing you can do. But somehow that you put on a mask, that's going to prevent that? Unless everyone really follows clinical guidelines and wears an N95, you're not going to see just with all the you know, casual wearings of it, the bacteria, it's going to catch the way we're doing. It's actually going to be a bigger trap for bacteria. We're going we're gonna to get into this more over time. But again, notice transparency is not their strong suit. Shut up, wear it, you're a criminal if you don't. But it's funny that real criminals like illegal aliens and you know rioters, they get let out of jail. Obviously, some of you I'm sure have seen the news. Three cops were physically beat up, including the police chief, on the Brooklyn Bridge. He's taken to the hospital. Now, how do you ever have cops, including a police chief, how could they get close enough to beat them up? And, and be on them long enough for that to happen. Well, that's what's happening now. Because basically their hands are literally tied. Sick, sick country. Well, the perpetrator was let out without having to post bail. Folks, there is an article written by, um, or an interview with this man, David Shore. Just Google it, David Shore interview, New York Mag. It's probably the greatest political science, science um Interview, but it's almost like the form of an essay that is out on the web today. The state of play. He's an avowed socialist who is a very young guy, brilliant data guru for the Democrat Party. And it's funny you listening from a left wing perspective. He talks about his concerns about Democrat overreach, even though he's a big socialist. But basically, his point is he thinks that their economic message resonates. Now, you know, if we had a party to combat that, it, I think it's not true, but I understand where he's coming from. But how the the social issues, just like the abolish police, the man is woman stuff, is like he's like they're they're stupid. That you have all these elites who think that, and no one else, working class whites. But he says even working class Hispanics and blacks don't buy into that. Very fascinating interview, and you know, listening to an avowed socialist say this stuff, I was thinking, man, if we had a new party. Right now, on the message of border control, putting Americans first, hard work, job availability, but but no mass handouts, law and order, punish criminals, self-defense for you, but clamp down on people who commit violence with guns. Don't even mention the word conservative. It's not even conservative. That party would crush it at this moment. Oh, if only we had leadership. Alrighty, guys. So I went a little bit long in the opening segment there, as always. But I did want to get to some of that information before we close the week. But now I want to get back to a topic we really haven't had time to talk about the entire time because of the anarchy and because of the tyranny and the corona fascism and the fake data and all the stuff we're going into um, every single day. However this issue does tie back into both. Because if you look at the underlying theme of what's going on is that we are second-class citizens. The social compact doesn't apply. So if you're an average American that doesn't want to hand out, you have a right to be here, you have a right to have a business, you are shut down, shut up, wear a mask, don't ask questions, the courts rebuff every challenge, we have nowhere to turn. 
Um, the White House is is overrun. Um, every Republican governor sounds like Cuomo now. Uh, you know, you look, the, the courts just reject us. But then whenever they want to do a certain move with regard to foreign nationals, travel, we've talked about this at the border where you literally have travel bans from one state to another mandatory 14-day quarantines, but there's no mandatory quarantine if you travel to Tamaulipas and bring in the vi- virus. Um, you know, we have a moratorium on illegal immigration. I know that sounds kind of funny. We should always have that where we turn them back so we don't bring in COVID. Well, except if you come with COVID because you need treatment, then we bring you in, count that as a COVID hospitalization, a COVID death, and then that's used against Americans. And likewise, we've noted that throughout all of this, they are still getting standing. Illegal aliens are getting released. They get standing to prevent ICE from apprehending at courthouses. There was another major court case that has to do with a policy that's really very important, and it's been overshadowed in the news this week. And that is this. One of the baseline expectations we had was that if we are getting shut down and schools are shut down and certainly the universities are shut down, well, we're obviously we're not going to bring in foreign students. Now, in general, we've had a lot of problems. There's over a million of them. It's grown from just a couple hundred thousand not too long ago. It's a cultural problem. You know, it's nice to have some, but but you know that many just really attenuates uh, the degree of Americanization and American education in these institutions. In the more extreme cases, particularly from China, which accounts for about 460,000 of them, we have counterintelligence problems. We have trade theft. We have espionage. Every, every week you see more cases on U.S. attorneys' websites. And this has been a big problem. Then you have the labor issue where this is the seamless pipeline into um, the workforce, crowding out American jobs. So we never had a prayer of reforming this. I mean, that, that university juggernaut was too much. But then came the virus. And then... Uh, unprecedented scenario where literally Americans were locked down. So the assumption would be that you wouldn't bring in foreign students for two reasons. Number one, just if you're worried about spread, then bring, you know, fostering more international travel, particularly from China, <laughs> is going to be a problem. And number two, because of the lockdowns and all the damage, there is, I mean, they're saying 11% unemployment, but it's really, you know, if you look at the underemployment, the wages and salaries and hours cut back, plus the fact that so many of them are just hanging on by a thread because the government pumped in trillions of dollars, we're in really, you know, worse shape than, than the 11% number would indicate. Well, you would think you'd shut off the foreign worker pipeline, even if in general you believe in that stuff. At a time like now, you wouldn't do that. So... You know, we, we've had a mixed bag of success with this administration pushing certain aspects of an immigration moratorium, but he decided he was going to do this. He was going to shut off foreign students, at least for those institutions that don't have in-person um, uh, classes, which is a lot of them, increasingly so, because they're part of that whole cabal that believes in this whole cult of shutdown and they're not having classes. So why would you bring them in? Well, MIT and Harvard lodged a lawsuit. And of course, they always get standing. They could always get standing on behalf of foreign nationals on the right to enter. I've been yelping for three and a half years when this started that the administration didn't forcefully lay down the marker, discuss the forgotten, unbendable case law from the judicial branch's own own high court that the president has final authority on the right to enter the country. The issuance of visas, there, there is no standing. I mean, that has been ironclad. And now the courts have fully taken it over and there's been, just been no opposition. So not only do they not say, get off my, my lawn, you think, okay, at least they'll appeal it. No, they preemptively just chucked the order in fear and anticipation of a temporary restraining order injunction placed against that ruling. With us today to discuss this what's going on in the White House, what's going on with amnesty for Obama's amnesty, some other issues, is Jessica Vaughn of Center for Immigration Studies. It's been a while, Jessica. Thanks so much for joining us today. Good to talk with you. 
yeah, I'm telling you, the virus put a moratorium on our uh, get-togethers because it's probably it's probably the longest period of time that I've gone without covering some aspect of immigration. But as always, it ties back into whatever the topic of the day is. It ties back in. Um, could you give us a synopsis? What did I miss out on that presentation? I have a feeling it's even worse than I made it out to be. Well, with respect to the so-called student ban, as, as is the latest hashtag from, from the left and from the open borders side, um, this is an interesting case. It, it, it is much ado about something that should be nothing, for sure. And I don't think anybody in, any, in the administration thought that it was going to blow up like this. But here's what happened. So uh, as you uh, pointed out, we, we were all locked down in March. And uh, the universities uh, went to online instruction, as did a lot of the high, you know, the high schools, too. Uh, so the law says, the a law that was passed shortly after 9-11 says that foreign students are not permitted to take any more than one class online, that they have to be in nearly complete full-time instruction. And I should say if the online part was added a little bit later. After 9-11, the system for tracking foreign students was set up and um, you know, setting up a system whereby colleges and universities or any school or institution hosting um, foreign exchange students or um, foreign students or workers uh, in, under exchange programs had to report to the government that those students were or workers were in good standing and that they were still participating in their program that they were admitted for. And eventually in the regulations, they added a prohibition against having people enrolled in primarily online or distance learning programs for obvious reasons. If you're in a distance program, you don't need to be physically in the United States. What do you need a visa for? And there were lots of diploma mills that were springing up and people coming in to um, claim to be students, but really here to work and so on. So we have this rule that says no more than one um, online course in your program. It has to be in-person instruction. Along comes March and the pandemic shutdown and, and ICE this obscure office within ICE actually decides to exceed its authority and make an exception because of the pandemic. And so they sent out a, uh, a uh, an announcement to all of the participating schools, which are numerous, that they are going to unilaterally decide without authority to suspend that rule on online instruction and let all the foreign students be engaged in fully online programs. Then fast forward to to July, and they decided. And, and, well, wait, wait, just I want to freeze frame there. And there were no there were no problems with that. There were no lawsuits. So there, they actually did promulgate a rule that violated statute. But it's never a problem if it's more open for you know visas and immigration. Right. No one ever had a lawsuit that they violated the law then. Right. Our side was a little bit asleep. Well, that should have been challenged. It was a violation of the APA. So now they fast forward. Nothing happened. Every, you know, the colleges and universities were all grateful. ICE, you know, if nothing else, loves, you know, it's, it's so used to being excoriated that they love it when people like something they do. <laughs> so they fast forward to July and they're like, well, you know, we really, if all these schools are going to keep doing online learning, which actually most of them aren't, only about 8% of colleges and universities uh, were planning to go fully online, including Harvard and a bunch of Ivy League institutions and others, which happen to have a lot of foreign students and depend on them for revenue. So um, they decide to modify the rule and say, Okay, we're going to roll this back a little bit, and you know you can all you you have to be taking a certain number of in-person classes, or you're not going to be able to come back, or you're not going to be able to be a new foreign student in this program. And if you're here already and you're planning on doing online instruction, you need to go home. And and you're not a graduate student. Graduate students were exempt, 
um, because if they're doing research or something like that, or they're a TA or something that, you know, it was really pretty flexible. Well, you know, because Harvard was one of the schools that is, first of all, overwrought about, you know, thinks it's a death sentence to put people in a room together now. Uh, and um, secondly, they want all the foreign students to be able to enroll. They had a fit and most other um, universities joined into the collective scream of outrage that the Trump administration was um, picking on foreign students, trying to coerce universities into opening up by saying that they, they you know, could only do, I think it was half of their classes online, something like that. And then, um, so Harvard and MIT sued almost immediately, even though this was not even a rule, it was really an announcement that they were going to promulgate a yep. rule. But, but you and could sue political statements. I mean, this has been a precedent right. already during this administration. Right. And so, um, you know, they took them, you know, to court and, of course, found a, uh, a sympathetic judge in the First Circuit in, in Boston, um, who was is already known for, you know, being sympathetic to um you know, open borders and lax immigration enforcement and was getting ready to issue probably a restraining order on the government. And they just caved immediately. Uh, and, and but, you know, they say we, we don't really know what's going to happen. Um, they've already said, well, we want to just ban new students coming from abroad to online programs, because, again, it is still as obvious as the nose on everybody's face that you don't need to be here for online instruction. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, people had no problem with this except for the foreign students who are here actually to work. And plenty of them will admit that they didn't want to go home because it would interrupt their jobs, not their studies. Oops. And others who are, you know, so destitute that they went to Europe to walk, to wait out the pandemic instead of going back to their home countries and you know in China or Africa or wherever, um, you know they're they they've got it tough. Um, so it, you know it's now the ice just completely caved in and um, says it's going to do something else, but I frankly don't think they're going to have the courage to do much more because of the backlash on their attempt to roll back what they shouldn't have ever done in the, to begin with, which was, you know, to, to let them take any, any more than one course online as part of their program. And now I think that they are so cowed, they're going to be afraid to do anything. And particularly with respect to anything that interrupts foreign students or foreign students who want to be foreign workers. The perfidy and irony in what you just said is so profound on so many levels so number one, you have the threat of an unelected judge could now throw out a policy that actually does need to be thrown out um, because it violates statute the other way. But it's like, hey, we're only going to apply statute like, you know, 30 percent. And he's like, no, you can't even apply it 30 percent. You have to apply a zero percent. So... Yeah. And then the yeah. judges, yeah, you, you, the suit was all about how ICE violated um, administrative procedure, you know, not doing notice and comment and how they did this second rule where the first rule also did. They don't care. They're not challenging that. So we're going back to a rule that it was also illegally enacted or promulgated. Yeah, me, me, meaning, meaning the administration should announce, you're right, it violated the APA to go and do anything to um, hand out visas issue visas to those that don't have or are not enrolled in in-person instruction. And therefore, we're going to follow statute and nobody will be allowed to remain or come in if they don't go to in-person instruction. I mean, you're right. We're not going to modify statute in any way. I mean, this is the thing that a lot of even our people are unaware of. They, they miss that the media makes it seem like Trump tries to promulgate something really novel that's against statute, but it's really the opposite. It's that often these things are a half-hearted attempt to the for the first time to actually apply statute partially. Like we saw the same thing with expedited removal. It wasn't anything novel. It was partially applying what should have always been done pursuant to statute. And a judge says, no, um, you know, my woke Antifa agenda is the law, not the statute. 
but there's something just really and ironic like here. DACA yeah. It, it, exactly we, and I want to get like to DACA. DACA. I want to I want to get that. But before that, just one more thing on the students. Could you talk about the consequences of this? Because am I not correct in asserting that at a time when, you know, whether you agree or disagree, they are ratcheting up lockdown type of policies again throughout the country. Do you mean to tell me while we have why while my fr- freaking kids will very likely be home again in elementary school when there is one tenth of a threat from COVID to, to school age kids as there is the flu, by the way, they will be home. But you are telling me that people from China will be flying in. Absolutely. They're now getting on planes and coming back, especially the oh, ones no. who went to Europe. They're, they, you know, oh, they, geez. you know, now have, have been told to come on back and um, resume oh. their life here in the United States. And also, you know, because nobody wants to do anything about foreign students, this is going to empower the colleges and universities to have all the American kids studying online because now they, you know, there was no fear that they were going to lose their foreign students. So now they can put everybody online if they want to. So watch for that. Watch for that mid-semester. I mean, my daughter's going back to college in a few weeks, and they're doing the hybrid model. Um, but, you know, if, if, there start to, if we start to see cases arise on college campuses, there's going to be another collective freakout. Oh, for sure. Among the administrators Not and this. the parents. This, and they're going to shut them down again. Yeah, and cases. The, you know, yeah. And and uh, our kids were gonna are gonna be forced into this completely ineffective online model of higher education because and you know the foreign students get to stay and and many of them you know nobody's saying again anything about the fact that they're here especially to work um, as much as to study in many cases. Or so so again, just to be clear, if you're from Texas or Florida, or actually you you live in South Carolina. If you're from South Carolina and and your kids want to go to NYU in New York, a place like that, they are now saying they're going to collect your information. You have to quarantine for 14 days and you'll I mean, you know, they're they're abolishing police. So police are getting I talked about, you know, before I brought you on how police are physically getting assaulted on the Brooklyn Bridge, including a police chief. And the guy gets released without having to pose bail. But believe me, if you have uh, someone from South Carolina go there and, you know, they think you didn't quarantine, they'll send the cops after you. So the police actually aren't abolished. It's just a matter of what they use them for. But but you could travel from Wuhan to go to New York. Can I ask you, I mean, I know this is not so much immigration, this is more the virus, but I don't know if you're following it. Is there a mandatory 14-day quarantine in New York or some of the similar states that have these against other states if you come from Wuhan? I haven't noticed that. Um, (laughs) There is a travel, I should say, there was a suspension of entry on people coming from China, Brazil, Iran, and most of Europe, or actually, I think all of Europe. So it expired? That just, now it just got lifted. The State Department sent out a memo oh, saying that they're lifting it for students and certain workers. And oh, I know no. you need, you really care about this one, au pairs coming from Europe so that they can all get here in time for the fall semester. Um, they're allowed to, you know, so the travel ban that was put in place logically because of the pandemic is, uh, gradually being rolled back by the state department. Oh, man. Jeez. Okay. Well, on that note, so we talked about foreign students. You see, I usually have a guest on because I get too explosive, so I need to calm down a little bit, but you're not, you're not really helping much. Um, (laughs) Let's move on to, to to other aspects of this. So we were told, again, you know, broader than foreign students. So, you know, Americans are locked down. We have state to state travel bans. So the assumption was not not even so much as an immigration policy, but just because of the epidemic, we're going to have an immigration suspension. Where does that stand? Could you go through the various categories of of green cards, um, uh, you know, uh, diversity visa lottery? A chain migration, H two visas, H one visas, different worker. Vi- what is shut down? What's not? What's fake shutdown? What's the state of play where we are now? The um, 
immigration programs that are shut down are the family preference categories and the employment preference categories with, and, the, and the visa lottery, the green card lottery, with the exception of uh, the so-called investor visa, i.e. citizenship for sale visa. I.e. Um, from China. From, yeah, the China <laughs> citizenship for sale. <laughs> citizenship for sale in China. Program. Because they're the least likely to spread the virus, of course. Yeah. Right. And um, all, you know, for people entering from abroad under those green card programs, that's been shut down um, for a while. Um, we also have a suspension of entries for certain guest worker programs, including the H-1B program for college work, college educated workers and uh, the L visa program for transferees, which is kind of a substitute for the H-1B. And the exchange worker programs are all shut down, which is where you get the lifeguards from the Ukraine and the, you know, ice cream scoopers from Ireland kind of thing. And also the H-2B program is partially shut down. And that's where you get the landscapers from Mexico and the manufacturing workers from all over the place, Romania, wherever. Um, We still have lots of farm workers coming in. Oh, wait, I want you to hold the thought. I want to get to other things that so you told us what is shut down. Now we're going to talk about what's not shut down. So you said the farm workers, that's H2A. Okay. So Jessica, you're aware of the fact that Hispanics now account for almost half the cases in many states. So North Carolina, Hispanics are 9% of the population. They account for 46% of the cases. Now, it's th- th- there is a certain degree of genetic vulnerability that I think CDC says both blacks and Hispanics have over whites and Asians for whatever reasons, vitamin D or maybe other factors. But no, no, no. That, this is obviously xenophobia. Even, but, 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 but that doesn't explain that degree of discrepancy. It, it and and we, I, we don't need to speculate. I mean, it's open source. It's obvious. It's it's a lot of these. Um, agricultural institutions they're testing they're finding it so you're saying in the areas where we're seeing the most cases admittedly i mean you read any panic porn you know article they all talk about the h2a type of facilities um i mean where are they going to be there aren't they going to be in agro-processors farm workers things like that right and then one of the reason if i had to speculate i don't know this for sure but it stands to reason it's you know they're all working outside so it's not because of the job it's because of the living quarters mm. um, where they're staying because they pack people 12 people to a small trailer um, that kind of living conditions that are conducive to spreading any kind of illness whether coronavirus or anything pink eye um, that's you know and and that's I believe what's responsible for the spread among farm workers. I, I can't think of any other, you know, possibility. Again, since they're working outside. Um, so, it, uh, Jessica, help me out here. I'm just trying to put it together because you know there's a lot of different categories of visas, but I want to put it together. So we have a travel ban at the border, unless you come in for COVID. Whether it's an illegal, I have border agents tell me that directly. They have illegals that have died in the RGV. They've been brought in for care. Um, whether it's LPRs, dual citizens, and I understand generally we, you know, they have a right to come in. But now we are putting bans on Americans from traveling state to state, mandatory quarantine. So certainly that would have been justified. It's not. We have a cutoff of visas, except for you know Chinese students and Chinese. Uh, donors, uh, investors, EB5, um, because we don't want to spread the virus, but except if you come from China. And then now you're saying, well, you know, generally we don't want to bring in more visas, but except the agricultural ones where we're actually seeing the most cases. <laughs> I mean, did, did someone do this on purpose? Oh, it's, it's all about favored special interests. Um, the Department of Agriculture under Secretary Sonny Perdue has been um, on a campaign to maximize the number of guest workers available for um, the larger growers, 
you know, in, in agriculture employers in the United States who find it easier to keep bringing in cheap labor than to, you know, try to progress in technology, using technology and robotics and machinery, um, which is what the rest of the developed world does in agriculture. You know, they want to stick to their feudal dupe labor model. Um, and and that's what our Department of Agriculture is promoting right now, believe it or not. Um, so and and they um, made sure that H two certain of the other unskilled guest workers could get in also if they were working in you know the the critical food industry, um, you know like picking crab on the eastern shore or some other um, types of food processing. They're allowed to come in also. So. What I'm seeing, a lot of people are talking about Florida now that seems to have the most cases. Um, deaths are not enormous per the cases, but, you know, they're going up a little bit, but they're having cases. You look at a place like Immokalee, okay, southwest uh, near the Everglades, lots of Guatemalan tomato pickers, maybe some others as well, but that's the predominant thing there to my knowledge. And, you know, this is from an AP article. Immokalee is among several immigrant communities in Florida and numerous rural areas across the U.S. that have recently experienced outbreaks. Um, You know, per capita, where is this? They talk about just per capita the number of places. And these are secluded areas. That's the funny thing. So typically, if you compare it to a similar county without that foreign labor dynamic, they have very few deaths i mean that's pretty much been the pattern because population density plays a huge role so if you have like immokalee typically you wouldn't expect that type of thing but the secluded town of twenty five thousand north of the of the everglades has reported more than a thousand cases outpacing in recent weeks the rate of infection in orlando which has a population 10 times bigger and is home to a busy international airport the number of cases in immokalee has surpassed those in miami beach with more than 900. Let me give you another piece. This is not reading from the article, just from myself. Yuma County, okay? I, I, I want to see what you, you're, you're going to do with this, given your knowledge on immigration over the years. Yuma County, it has 159 deaths. Now, Yuma County has 35 people per square mile, okay? That's very low on the totem pole. Very, very low in the in the scheme of things, you know, for 3,200 counties or so, it's towards the bottom, except for the counties that literally have one or less than one, and there, there, there are those. But it's but for a county that has a city, it's very low. I could not find in 3,000 counties in America any county with that degree of population density with anywhere near 159 deaths. And in fact, I just, for the fun of it, tried to find counties around the New York metro area, but, you know, a little bit out, that are comparative to population. So I looked at Dutchess County, New York, Hudson Valley, you know, still within the orbit of New York City, had much more deaths than other similar counties. It has 100,000 more people than Yuma County. It has... um. Its population density is 11 times greater than Yuma, and it has 50% more deaths. How do you explain uh, that? Well, it's because, um, see, the, the, um, there is no real ban on entry along our southern border. They are allowing people to enter with border crossing cards if they say, you know, for so-called essential travel, which can be anything like I need to go to the grocery store in the U.S. I need to visit my family member in the U.S. There's really there's much more traffic um, back and forth across the southern border than across the northern border because they've been very lax about imposing bans on entry. And um they're all so, you know, when people get sick, they want to go to a U.S. hospital. And it's some of it is no doubt Americans and green card holders who live on the other side. And then they're it's, it's like a kind of arbitrage of cost of living. You know, they want their they want to live on the cheap side, but take advantage of the schools and other and hospitals and everything else on the U.S. side. Um, so but it's also people arriving illegally 
who are making their way to hospitals also. You know, if, if, if somebody has COVID, it's a good time to try to walk across the border because if you collapse on the other side, you're going to be taken to a hospital. The Border Patrol is not going to let you die. They're going to transport you to a hospital. But then, unfortunately, those uh, agents who were involved in that apprehension have now been exposed to COVID and have to go isolate for seven or 14 days, whatever the policy is. So they're off the line. Um, so it's a big problem. I mean, that's told, that, that number of cases is certainly not from um, longtime residents of Yuma. It's from people coming across from Mexico to use the health care facility. No, and and I'm sure they're all paying their full bill, don't you think? I, I mean, it almost tracks with like the TB maps you've seen in the Texas Department of Health has put out over the years. It is so remarkable. It is because I've studied this in and out the whole, you know, the virology, the geography of it. I cannot find the, the it's remarkable. I, you know, I, I share this with our listeners, but I'll do do this with you on air um, because we haven't spoken about it. But it's remarkable. My control group to prove my theory is New Mexico. Same demographics, same latitude, seasonality. But New Mexico, as you well know, doesn't have sister cities, right? It's just desert. There's nothing, 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 nothing there. Um, all the way from um, Agua Pierta in Douglas, Arizona, all the way to Juarez under El Paso, Texas. There's nothing there. So. There's certainly no like American shopping in Reynosa type of dynamic there. And you don't have illegal immigration. Certainly, if you're you know choking from you know uh, a severe case of COVID, you're not going to waste your time going there. There's only one time in history the cartels even routed people there. Um, there's just nowhere to get there. There's nowhere there. Doña Ana County, okay? That's New Mexico's big border county. Um, same Hispanic demographics. As the RGV and as Yuma, so you know you're gonna you have that kind of factor of you know there is an elevated um, risk relative to let's say whites. It seems Doña Ana is the same population almost exactly as Yuma. Yuma has 159 deaths. Doña Ana has 11. 11. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is it is truly remarkable. Accessibility that makes a big difference. It it, it is you could convict someone in court on that evidence. Anyway, we're running out of time. Um, but I want to get to the 800 pound gorilla in the room now, which is Obama's amnesty. Um, you obviously had the court saying on technical grounds, how, um, Obama could subvert sovereignty and make up his own immigration program and not follow the APA, by the way. And then you can't rescind it without doing this to the APA. Um, so Americans would expect that Trump would immediately go and, I mean, really, he should tell the courts where to go, but of course, it's never going to happen. So at, at the very best, he will, you know, do an APA and and make sure they get rid of it. Then people hear him say on Telemundo that, yes, we need DACA. We need a path to citizenship, and I plan to do that. What are you hearing going on in the administration now? Uh, there is not much happening on the DACA issue. It's unclear if they even intend to issue a new DACA rescission at all at this point. Well, how could they um, if they want to codify it? Well, yeah, that's, I mean, <laughs> before the Supreme Court decision, they were assuming that it was going to be struck down and, you know, that they were going to be faced with a, you know, something that's been decreed to be illegal finally again. Um, and that they would have to wind it down. Um, and the um, the White House, uh, specifically Jared Kushner, was in discussions with people on the Hill about um, adding DACA to his massive comprehensive immigration reform bill um, to increase legal immigration. And um, and so he wanted to add DACA to that. Um, now, the Supreme Court decision, which was very kind of wishy-washy, um, has basically taken away any incentive for anyone to do anything about DACA. There's absolutely no reason to do it. it it's an election year, first of all. Second of all, they don't have a lot of time. Um, I think all of the elite players here, whether it's the, you know, the chief justice of the Supreme Court or the leaders of the Democratic and Republican parties, 
have really overestimated how much people actually care what happens to DACA at this point, especially now with everything going on, and nobody wants to touch it. Now, it, not it, it's kind of like the gun remains, issue. But- it's kind of like the gun issue where everyone agrees, broadly speaking, people want self-defense. And, you know, Clinton and Gore always talked about that, how the gun control killed them. But if you actually pull a lot of their policies, well, should we have more serious background checks? They'll pull like 90-10. And it's a similar thing here. Well, you know, you have kids that know no other country of their own. They know more than your kids. They're they're the smartest kids alive. They've never committed a crime. You know, should, should we kick them out of the country? You know, and then they look, oh, Daniel, the polling is horrible we got whatever we got to do this could you talk a little bit about the criminality the criminality numbers we've seen um from daca and and the data that we're missing right well the thing we have to remember is that you were explicitly allowed to have a criminal history um and still get approved for daca um so as long as you didn't have more than two misdemeanors um, on separate, you know, committed on separate occasions, you you could get DACA. And according to the data released by USCIS, there are almost 80,000 people with DACA who have a criminal history, uh, including felonies. Certain types of felonies uh, were exempt from disqualifying you for DACA. So, um, you know, that's that's a pretty significant percentage of people, 80,000 people who, you know, are criminals who have DACA. Um, and, you know, we hear a lot about the number, you know, who are doctors working on COVID or curing cancer or whatever. But the fact is there are more criminals than um, than there are doctors with DACA. Um, it's it, the, the population. We don't know a lot about it because people haven't really studied the socioeconomic status or characteristics of people with DACA, but about one out of five have not completed high school, even though you were supposed to have completed high school to, or we were told that you had to have graduated from high school to get DACA. That's not true. You just had to have been enrolled in some kind of educational program. Um, Probably about the same number have graduated from college. Um, and, you know, the, most of the rest either have some college or graduated from high school. Um, it's a lot like the illegal alien population as a whole. Uh, it's, you know, primarily people from Mexico. Um, I think about 75 percent of them were living in households that um, were receiving public assistance. And that's why, you know, any legalization of people with DACA is going to be enormously expensive because we know that a large share of people who get, you know, who suddenly become on a path to citizenship are going to be on on welfare programs. Also natural Republican voters, too. Right. Yeah. So, it, you know, there there is not a great um, appetite of people to to do something about DACA. Um, reportedly, the administration still is not accepting new DACA applicants, which is a good thing. Uh, they don't, there's no reason to do that. Um, but they're not moving to end it either. Uh, there's no movement in Congress to resolve the situation. The Democrats have already passed their Dream and Promise Act, which is a massive amnesty that goes well beyond DACA. The Republicans in the Senate don't want to deal with it, except for a couple of, um, you know, moderate Republicans who are up for reelection who think that if they, you know, talk about DACA, that they'll, you know, have some chance of getting, you know, a, a large share of the Hispanic voters to vote for them, which is a complete fantasy. It's absolutely you know, not going to happen. Um, but they continue to believe that pandering on DACA is the key to electoral success. Um, but nobody really wants to touch it. So it's what I fear is that it will get to a lame duck Congress and you know, they'll feel some kind of pressure to pass some big amnesty. But um, it's really hard to say what's going to, you know, the Democrats have no incentive because they think they're going to win in the fall uh, in November. So they'll they'd rather do something bigger that they want. Exactly. And, um, and the Republicans don't want to touch it. And I think Trump is going to kind of basically say, try to have his cake and eat it too, by saying, well, I tried once to fix DACA and the Democrats rejected me as if that's going to be enough to impress voters. You know, and people will think the court struck it down, even though technically it didn't. 
Um, but you know, that's that's how it kind of got got sold. That was always my fear. Um, just to transpose this discussion to the final point, we're talking about criminality. Um, you know, I always say there, there's a tremendous amount of criminality that we detect. There's there's 3.2 million um, undetained uh, known aliens, mainly criminal aliens, in ISIS on ISIS docket. You have in FY 2019 among the detainers issued from ICE. The cumulative tally of homicide charges and convictions were 2,500 just in one fiscal year's worth of uh, detainers, 56,000 assaults, 14,500 sex crimes, 5,000 robberies, 2,500 kidnappings. Um, You look at New York's murder rate, which is going to be a lot higher this year, but for last year, it almost accounts for like half the murders. Now, again, it's some of them are from different years. It's not exactly, but it's it's very prominent um, as always, you know, as in any demographic, they're mainly going to be committed by the younger illegal aliens, not the older ones. So obviously among DACA and dreamers, so to speak, you're going to have them. But in general, my concern is this. The Overton window keeps moving on even enforcement against I'm finding the worst gang members and sex offenders. They still get released. They get released from COVID. They can now protest in the riots and, and, and not just protest, but riot. And they get released. They're 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 not even like LPR is doing it. They're they're illegals rioting. Judges prohibit their deportation. I'm looking at the numbers in FY 2019 and, you know, interior enforcement, uh, Arrests were down 10%, way down from most of the Obama years. And this year is is almost comatose. I spoke with a friend at ICE yesterday, and he told me they're down to 22,000 people in detention. Now, on the one hand, yes, that's a function of we shut down the border crisis, and in general, we stop the asylum fraud, and we're turning back illegal aliens, so you know you don't have the new intake. But on the other hand, Jessica... Those three million at the very minimum criminal aliens did not go away. And to me, the fact that we're down to 22,000 tells me we might not have intake, but we also have no interior enforcement going on. Well, yes, there are two two reasons for that. The the main reason that the number of uh, the average daily population, as they call it, is down so much is because ICE had to um, kind of clear out some of its detention facilities because uh, they were concerned that there would be outbreaks of COVID and that they would be ordered to release everybody. So some of it was proactive. Others, though, there are a lot of judge-ordered releases of people from ICE custody, including in New England. There's a judge there that was releasing, you know, 10 a day um, criminal aliens not because they had COVID, just because he thought that they shouldn't be in detention during a pandemic. And there are other places, you know, that have, Pennsylvania saw some of the same thing. Um, but th- that's a short-term problem. The bigger problem is that interior enforcement um, has not improved at all since the last couple of years of the Obama administration. Um, we are, as you pointed out, at the same level of interior enforcement. There is no worksite enforcement to speak of. Um, there is no overstay enforcement to speak of. They have not implemented um, accelerated forms of removal. There was a lot of talk about sanctuaries and going after the sanctuaries. Um, if you remember, Obama made a great speech. Yeah, there, but um, there hasn't been much done about it at all. And this is one of it, it. really the biggest disappointments of the Trump administration is that they have not been able to restore interior enforcement, even to the levels that we saw under the early years of the Obama administration. It really is a problem. And there are a few reasons for it. Certainly the border crisis didn't help. Um, the proliferation of sanctuaries hasn't helped. But there are. There are deeper institutional problems at work there as well. Uh, and yeah, they're, they've lowered their own expectations to the point where um, ICE thinks that it is just about the worst of the worst criminal aliens and not about uh, and even the integrity then, of our immigration. But yeah, even, even then, then, a lot of them, I mean, I mean, remember when you have, you know, ICE doesn't target the nanny. I mean, they really don't. Um, so when you have three over three million people in their crosshairs 
okay? And only 22,000 are detained. I mean, those got to be really bad. Uh, because I, I've seen a lot of these MS-13 cases I report on in Montgomery County, Maryland, where they go on to rape a child or murder. And you see there's pretty bad stuff, but they were set loose. They were um, they were set loose by these uh, immigration judges. And, you know, again, I mean, my audience is very familiar with my crime reporting in general, you know, not just in the context of immigration. It's those with those, you know, assaults, drug trafficking, firearms charges. Those are the people that wind up doing the really bad crimes over time. Um, that, it's among their that own pool. neighborhood. Yes. Yeah, and in their own neighborhood, of course. Yeah, I mean, all the sex offenses are are against, um, you know, Latinos, whether they're legal or illegal. Um, I mean, we've certainly seen that in Montgomery, which has just become a. Uh, um, you know what, man? I could be on the uh, on, on the call with you forever. I promise this is the last thing. Just reminded me, I meant to talk to you about this. So we've seen in Montgomery County these cases of these twenty one year old people that ICE has confirmed with us have been resettled as. UACs, unaccompanied alien children, self-trafficked punks that we treat as refugees and then they bite the hand that feeds them. So they're put in high schools with 11-year-old girls and there have been cases there of rape accusations where you have 20, 21-year-old illegal aliens from Honduras or El Salvador in the same schools as 11-year-old girls. How widespread is that? Oh, it's happened all over the country in places where these unaccompanied minors have been settled, you know, with no notice to the authorities in those areas. It's happening in Massachusetts, in New York, in Georgia, in California, Colorado, all and anywhere where UACs have been settled. We're finding that, you know, because um, while, you know, when they're resettled, they have access to a social worker and legal representation. And the first thing that those advocates do is insist that they be mainstreamed into the public high schools in the area. And um, even though these, you know, kids are here to work either, you know, in a, in a, in an unskilled labor job or for the gang, um, they're most, for the most part, not interested in being in the high school um, that's what they're, that's what they get to do. It's completely inappropriate. Um, and it's causing huge problems in these public schools and degrading the education of all the kids there. Um, I don't, you know, but part of the problem is, yeah, how do they get to be 21 when at 18, they're no longer minors? Um, but some states have changed their laws to change the definite, the, the um, age of majority so that they can be considered minors until age 21. Now, U.S. citizens' kids can't be, but they make exceptions. Ah. And they're sometimes applying for this program called the Special Immigrant Juvenile Visa, where they, if they claim that they were abused, neglected, or abandoned by one of their parents, oh, boy. then they qualify for a green card. Doesn't and- that apply to every self-trafficked one? So by definition, one of them left, came to America, hires a trafficker to bring them in they could say they were neglected by one parent by the other one yeah and and the the um the eligibility for these green cards is determined not by uscis but by a state family court judge that's how you know man so it's outsourced pretty much to them and uscis has a little bit of a role to play but they can't control with the you know you know you can imagine how these state family court judges view these cases of course they want them to be able to you know stay here and so it they have until they're age 21 to get that benefit and it becomes difficult for ice to touch them once they get the green card so essentially three and a half years into this administration we have Americans last, albeit with these kind of bubbles of fleeting, small-scale success pushed by the minority of pro-enforcement, pro-sovereignty, patriotic forces in the administration in the instances where they're able to win over the Kushner wing. I mean, is that essentially 
the summation of what we've seen in this administration vis-a-vis immigration policy? The, the only good things happen um, are, that we're getting on immigration policy are because Jared Kushner decided that it was OK to let that part go. Um, but as long as he is able to push his agenda of, you know, allowing access to uh, guest workers and not interrupting the legal immigration flow. So, um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. And and there have been some good things, you know, at the border asylum reform has um, been enacted and that's good. The border wall is being built. The number of ref- refugees being admitted is much, much smaller than it was before. But um, but, but, but we're losing Jessica, ground I, I, in some other areas. We're losing ground, and, and and I take I take exception with the with the refugee thing because you're right. I mean the numbers are are very low. But but dude, I mean whether we agree with it or not, and I tend to disagree, but we're treating this like the worst thing since the bubonic plague in the Middle Ages, that this is literally the worst pandemic in a thousand years. So, I mean, we've shut people in their homes. We've shut schools. We're shut across state travel. So to me, the expectation would be zero refugees, not not even even if you're a pro-refugee person, just in terms of the dynamics of, of international travel and spread. And yet, I am seeing they are being resettled in, in much are. lower numbers, but they are being resettled. Yes. Yes. I mean, there have been, I think, what, about 3000 refugees resettled during the pandemic. Oh, God, you're really I mean, man, <laughs> <laughs> you made me ticked off. But look, I mean, guys, you, you got to be knowledgeable. You got to be empowered. Hey, I'm you sure can- we took their temperature, right? Yeah. No, no. Yeah. We well, actually, no, because I, I asked them about the border. I asked them, you know, if we take temperatures at the border and I knew we didn't. And and they're like, well, if we see signs, we we send them to CDC. But there is no automatic temperature taking of people at the land ports. And I don't think at the airports either, actually, um, whereas a lot of countries really do have that. But again, foreign travel, foreign immigration, foreign visas, that is sacred. We could be shut down. Your business shut down. Your church shut down. Your school shut down. You wear a diaper on your face in the 95 degree weather, as we mentioned before, without any um, clinical studies. Fauci said he's not going to demand one on that because he's made up his mind, even though his mind was the other way. In February, Americans last make America free again. Folks, um, that was Jessica Vaughn. Thank you so much for joining us and for that enlightening, albeit depressing, presentation. We will be back again this time, this place, next week. Have a terrific weekend. Stay safe and stay informed.